Welcome to Query, where we provide simple answers to complex tech questions. My name is Serenity Caldwell, and I am joined, as always, by my co-host, Stephen Hackett. Hi, Stephen. Hey, we're back. We are back. And I'm in the U.S. for the first time uh, since we started the show. That's good. Yeah. Welcome welcome back. I feel the freedom. (laughs) (laughs) So we have a bunch of fun topics today. So I thought we would uh, jump right in. Let's do it. for you. Yeah. I want to hear the questions. Beauty of a 30-minute show, no follow-up. Nope. (laughs) Just straight to it. Straight to the point. So Chaz asks about two-factor authentication. And he's asking if it's enabled for iCloud and he loses his phone, how could he authenticate it? So I want to come back to that question but first, I think it's worth talking a little bit about two-factor authentication sort of in general, because it's it's a little confusing and a little complicated. But I think the basic idea, the way I think about it, at least, is that you there's something that you know and something that you have. And something that you know is your password to log into Google or iCloud or Facebook or whatever. And then something you have is required as well. And in, in this case, it is a, you know, usually a six or eight digit code that you have to provide after you provide your password. And most of the times, uh, you know, most services send those to you via uh, SMS text message. So I log into Facebook and I enter my password and it says, oh, hey, I want to make sure that you're actually Steven and my phone lights up with a text message and I just read it and I put that code in in my browser, right? Pretty simple. Something I know and something that I have. Does that sort of yeah. break down mix? No, I think you I think you broke it down really well. I think there are a couple things to mention with two factor too. Uh, people refer to these multi-step authentication procedures as both two factor and two step authentication. Mm-hmm. Uh, and one is infinitely more secure than the other. Uh, two step authentication is what uh, a lot of services including iCloud did at first, which was just, um, and Google does two-step authentication right now, which is um, when you first log into an unfamiliar computer or a uh, from an IP address that uh, the, the service in question doesn't recognize, it will prompt you and say, hey, this is an unrecognized device. Thank you for your password, but we're going to send you an additional code to approve it. Um, and then once you enter in that secondary code, you won't have to re-enter in a code for a limited period of time, say 15 days, 30 days, maybe it's even as close as 24 hours. Uh, but that kind of authentication is considered two-step, um, whereas two-factor authentication, as Stephen, you were saying, requires a code every single time you log in, uh, whether that's from uh, via an SMS where you've had a a text message pre-sent to you, to your phone, um, or by a third-party service, um, which we should probably talk a little bit about third-party services um, before we get on to the the iCloud question, Stephen, uh, in terms of how they're a little bit different than SMS codes and why they might be mm-hmm. a little bit more secure. Yeah, so I think, I think what you're talking about is the one-time password. Yes, correct. There are a couple apps that do this. Uh, Authy is a very popular one. One password sometime in the last couple of years out of this as well. And some other password managers offer this. And and basically what it is, instead of waiting for a text message to come in, this application has already been set up. So you, so you have to go around to each of your accounts. So uh, say you do this on a Google account. In your account settings, you say, hey, I don't want text messages. I want to set up a uh, an authentication app. And most of the time they put up a QR code and then you scan the QR code with your phone is how most of these apps work. 
or they send you a link, sort of a one-time link. And if you open that app, it's just it has a six-digit code and it's just counting down. And every minute or so, you get a new six-digit code that's only good for that window of time. And what's nice about these, and I've switched almost all of my two-factor accounts to this because it works offline and it just if my you know if one password is not online for some reason or I'm having I'm on my Mac and text message forwarding isn't working it's it's already on my device now there there are pros and cons and we can get, get into that but that one time password like I think that language is a little confusing really all it is it's it's a two factor code that's been generated by an app and not a text message that's kind of the main difference I think yeah it's basically uh, the reason why these things are secure is essentially it works um, by giving a signed handshake from, you know, in this case, a QR code generation and your uh, unique account. Um, and that's mm-hmm. pre-set up and pre-signed. So essentially, these two things are saying, we're going to give it a little encrypted handshake. And from that encrypted handshake of two like very disparate long strings of text, we have created um, this one-time code for you to use. And that one-time code usually refreshes every 30 seconds or so. Um, so as Stephen mentioned, it's really useful when you're offline um, and or rather some of your devices are offline, say your phone. If you're in the air, for example, this is where I use, where I run into this a lot. If I'm working on a plane's Wi-Fi service uh, and my phone doesn't have, you know, text messaging over Wi-Fi set up, um, which a lot of QR or a lot of these one time uh, codes, they get sent via old fashioned SMS and not, you know, iMessage. Uh, then it's really, really useful to have a, a reader like Authy because Authy will work even if you don't have access to SMS. You can get that code and then you can log into things like Dropbox or Facebook or Twitter or anything else that you have two-factor set up with instead of having to wait until you land on the ground. Right. And uh, to getting to the, the question that started this, iCloud works a little bit differently because Apple controls the operating system. So say that I am logging into an Apple website on my iMac and I have two-factor set up on my iCloud account, a pop-up will show up on my devices saying, hey, someone is trying to log into your account at this location. Location is kind of hit or miss. If you're using like your broadband internet at home, the location may be off if it's, you know, if Comcast reports your location in a different city or something. But that's gotten better over the years. And you say, yes, that's me. And you get a six-digit code and you go enter it in your browser. So it's not via SMS or even something like 1Password. It is sort of a unique to Apple solution because they build iOS and macOS and iCloud. It just it, It's very nice. And I think it's a little less... Uh, it's a little less nerdy than you know <laughs> than getting a, a secret message. Like you kind of feel like a, like a spy when you get a text message. Like yes, I'm getting my account because I got this text message that will self destruct. <laughs> the the question: If I have enabled and I lose my phone, how do I authenticate? Anytime you set up a two factor authentication system, you get recovery keys. Uh, with Apple, there's uh, some different options for that that we can get into. But uh, because it's on all your devices, if you have another Mac or an iPad, you would still be able to get in. Yeah. And it's also worth noting, uh, because all of these things, all of Apple's, you know, uh, prompts for this cannot show up unless your device is open and unlocked. So if someone, say, steals your phone or if you lose your phone, that doesn't mean they gain access to your iCloud account. They can only uh, see those one-time passwords um, and 
log in with those if they have access to your phone unlocked and open, which is Mm -hmm. uh, another reason why we really encourage having strong passwords and touch ID enabled on your phone so that you can keep all of that safe if anything happens. Absolutely. So so we will have uh, Apple's help page about this. Uh, when you set this up, you also give them a trusted phone number. So they use that to help triangulate that you're the right person. But there are there are pros and cons of this. And, you know, if someone has your phone, if anyone has physical access to any of your devices, your security is compromised, at least to a degree. So like Ren said, have Touch ID, have, you know, good passcodes on your devices or passwords on your Mac. But nothing, you know, nothing is, is perfect. But... I strongly recommend two-factor authentication because it, it gets you so far down the road towards security. If, if you just have a single password, uh, and you, especially if you use the same password everywhere and it gets leaked somewhere, you know your accounts may be, may be accessible. So you should have strong, unique passwords. But two-factor is sort of the step on top, where even if a password gets stolen, unless they have an unlocked device of yours as well, uh, people aren't getting in. We'll have a link in the show notes to twofactorauth.org, which is a great resource. You basically search for the web service Uh, that you want to use, and they have links to their support pages on how to set it up, as it can save you a ton of time. It's really, really nice. It's open source, too, so if you see a link that's wrong, you can just tell them in GitHub, hey, you know, this link needs to be this, and it's sort of crowdsourced, which is really nice. Yeah, I I love that site, and iMore also has a guide on most major two-factor authentication services, including iCloud, if you want uh, more step-by-step information and and some advice on uh, when to set up and when not to set up two-factor. As Steven said, uh, generally, if you're trying to protect your web services, you want a unique password for all your web services. Uh, apps like 1Password can support that sort of... Uh, apps like 1Password can generate unique passwords for you or uh, Safari and iCloud Keychain. Um, something that's less secure but still unique is you can use a base password um, that is the same and then make unique additions that are unique to each uh, to each site, which is something I've done in the past and is really helpful. Um, you want to use unique usernames. That's another way to keep uh, keep people from stealing your information because if you use a different username on Twitter than you use on your banking, uh, it's going to be a lot harder for someone trying to hack your Twitter account to figure out how to get into your bank. Um, and then on top of that, two-factor authentication. That's kind of like my my holy trifecta for protecting web services. Yeah, I think I think that's all great advice. So, I, you know, I, like most people, when I started, you know, signing up for stuff, you know, 10 or 15 years ago, had just a couple of passwords I used. And so over time, I have slowly been diversifying them. And if you use something like 1Password or LastPass, another password manager, they can tell you what accounts are using the same password, like what duplicates you have. And so you can start kind of breaking these things apart. And, you know, it's a time investment, but it's totally worthwhile because so much of our lives are tied up in this stuff. Um, then you should you should invest the time and be safe. If you want to submit questions to the show, use the hashtag AskQuery on Twitter and we will see it. And we take questions on any tech topic from... Any manufacturer, any OS, uh, we are here to help. You can follow the show at Query Show on Twitter to stay up to date. Ben writes, I'm considering replacing a MacBook Air with an iPad Pro. I'm concerned by the lack of iTunes and my occasional need for Windows 10. I use iTunes to edit my music library and view album art, and I use Windows for my IT job when I don't bring my work computer home. So sounds like Ben is looking to make the move to iOS but has a couple sticking points. 
what do you have to to offer Ben? Well, first of all, I'm glad you're very aware of your needs because I think that's the most important thing when you're considering a new purchase, uh, whether you're Ben or anybody else. Um, I don't encourage people to switch to iOS just because they want new and shiny or just because they think the iPad is cool. You want to make sure that whether it's uh, a MacBook Pro, a MacBook, an iMac, a Mac Pro, an iPad, an iPhone, that it's going to work for your situation. Um, And if it's not the right computer for you, that's okay. Uh, So I just want to preface with that. Like, um, you don't have to force your workflow to fit into an iPad if it doesn't make sense. That being said, uh, based on the, granted, relatively limited information you've given me, Ben, um, I think that you could probably get away with working on an iPad pretty comfortably. Um, First of all, iTunes, I do agree. I wish it was more that the music app was more full featured on the iPad. It has this beautiful screen. And unfortunately, well, you do get fairly nice looking album art. It's not full screen. Um, And if you're looking to edit it or edit other metadata, you can't do it in the music app itself. That said, um, there are third party apps that both let you look at album art in full screen as well as edit uh, your metadata. And uh, we're going to put some of them in the show notes. Um, off the top of my head, I looked uh, searched through, through the App Store for a little bit, and there are a couple of different metadata tag editors. Um, there's also third-party software uh, that emulates uh, Apple's old cover flow. Um, that's an app that you can get for iPad, as well as a music player um, that came out last year called Akut which focuses very much on big, giant um, cover art. So there are third-party solutions if you want to be able to do that. And of course, if you have an iCloud Music Library um, and you have access to a Windows computer, which it sounds like you do for your IT job, um, you can always edit your metadata and your cover art on that computer if you choose to sync it over. Um, And then that edited metadata will sync back to your iPad. Um, On the Windows side, uh, now obviously Windows won't run on the iPad and there's no way for it to run natively on the iPad. That said, there are third-party apps that allow you to either use your iPad as an extension of your Windows computer um, with a, uh, apps like Duet Display allow you to use it as a second monitor while you're at the job. Um, but in addition to that, if you need to use Windows for a specific thing, um, you can actually use an app called Screens uh, that will allow you to remote desktop into your Windows computer and do pretty much anything that you could do on that computer because you're essentially, you're using your your iPad as a remote screen for that computer. So that computer is running all the tasks and your iPad is just uh, your interface. And I use screens all the time to do things on my Mac or to get things from my Mac, uh, depending on where you are in the network. You know, if you're on the local network with the computer, it's going to be a lot faster. If you're, say, going into screens from your home and your Windows computer is at your work, that might be a little bit slower. Um, But that's a really easy way to kind of work with a multi-operating system setup, um, but still use an iPad on the go. Uh, In addition to that, I will say that um, in my research, and I've talked to a lot of people who have used the iPad as their primary job, 
There are a lot of IT professionals who have switched to iPad-only work for a lot of uh, a lot of the stuff they're doing, a lot of the networking and troubleshooting issues they have. Um, I don't know off the top of my head what apps they're using uh, to accomplish that. But if you're an IT professional listening to this show and you've gone iPad only or you've experimented with iPad only, I'd love for you to write us at hashtag AskQuery and let me know what your what your specific uh, workflows are, because then we can pass that on to Ben if he's so curious. Um, but yeah, like as I said in the the start of this question, I really think that it it depends on your personal workflow. Uh, there are definitely apps based on the criteria you mentioned, Ben, that would help you work on iPad um, and help you work, I think, to a pretty, pretty natural degree. But at the same time, uh, if it feels like at any point that this is going to be too hacky for you or this just doesn't fit with how you how you're working, don't switch to a computer that you're going to be frustrated over. Um, there are many people who use iPad as their primary laptop and have a blast with it and find it works better than their Mac um, and a Mac laptop. But if it becomes more hassle than it's worth, then you're not using the right tool for the job. I think iPad could be the right tool for the job for you, but I always include that disclaimer because, you know, you never know. Everybody's situation is unique. Everybody's situation requires different different tools and different workflows. Yeah, I think that's well said. You know, there's a lot of work that I can do on my iPad, but I prefer to do it on my iMac. But I'm in audio production for a living. And, you know, again, some of that can be done on the iPad with tools like Ferrite. But I at least have found so far that the Mac is a a better platform for me. And so I think, think, don't force it, try it. And, you know, there's no harm in... And saying, hey, you know, I'm going to take 85% of my work to the iPad, but these couple of tasks are going to be reserved for a Windows machine. Or, you know, maybe I'm going to keep that MacBook Air around for the handful of things I can only do on Mac OS, but I'm going to transition to being iPad, you know, as a primary device and not necessarily a solitary device. And I think that can lead to a lot less frustration if you have some tasks that you can't quite let go of yet. Yeah, I absolutely agree with that. So, Stephen, um, what do you use for your your workflow? Because you mentioned you had an iPad. How do you find, like, what tasks do you do in your Mac? What tasks do you really enjoy doing on your iPad? And how have you found balancing the two? Yeah, I mean, all the, I mean, recording podcasts, editing podcasts, all that's done on the iMac. Some of that's just not possible on iOS, some of the audio routing stuff that I need. Uh, as far as the rest of the work, though, you know, I do a lot of administration work for Relay, and I do a lot of writing. And both of those things can be done really on iOS or macOS and basically with the same efficiency. And so that those tasks, you know, I'll do it my Mac if I'm in the office, but I can pick up my iPad and go somewhere else or sit on the couch and, and, and do that work. And I've really come to enjoy writing uh, articles on the iPad. I know that's sort of like the default answer. I go, oh, I'm going to write on it, but <laughs> it is such a good tool for that. And the 10.5 inch smart keyboard has totally changed it for me. The 9.7 was just a little too cramped. And, and now I'm finding I'm doing a lot of writing, including my multi-thousand word Mac OS High Sierra review <laughs> uh, for, my, for my blog. That's being done on the iPad as much as it can be as far as writing and you know making screenshots on the Mac. And I'll assemble it on the Mac uh, and, and publish it there. But a lot of the writing I'm doing on the iPad just because I can be anywhere and I can take it with me and, and it's lightweight and portable um, – but over time, you know, I've noticed things like that administrative work at Relay. So dealing with sponsors, dealing with the banking, uh, that sort of stuff, 
I can totally do on the iPad. It's just a matter of kind of what I'm in the mood for, honestly. Yeah, absolutely. That's kind of how my uh, my situation has evolved as well. I have an iMac here in my home office in the States. And then in up when I've been living up in Canada, I've had my MacBook Pro and a 10.5-inch iPad Pro. Um, and my MacBook Pro really has become my desktop computer over there. So I use the MacBook Pro and I hook up the 10.5-inch iPad as a second screen with Duet or AstroPad if I'm drawing or editing photos. Um, but then when I'm going, when I'm on the go, um, it's always the iPad that I take to a cafe or a coffee shop because I can do pretty much anything, uh, save for Trello. Dear Trello people, if you're if any of you are listening to this podcast, it would be awesome if the Trello app worked better for iPad Pro. Um, but uh, overall, I I actually really enjoy working on the iPad more, I think, than working on my Mac when I'm going somewhere to write. Because as you mentioned, it is very um, it allows you to be very focused in a way that I think the multitasking environment of the Mac sometimes pulls at your attention. Um, and I also like how lightweight um, and long lasting it is. The battery still has nothing or, or, or like there's there's no comparison between an iPad's battery and a MacBook Pro's battery. My iPad will win out every time. And I have a LTE iPad, so I can actually use it pretty much anywhere where with I'm toting around my MacBook Pro, I occasionally have to worry about cell service and tethering and things like that. And that's it's just an extra hassle. So, yeah. All right. I think that brings us to the speed run. Speed run. K.E. Applin. Aplin. I'm sorry if I mispronounce your name. Please tell me if I got it wrong. Uh, they ask, is making a bootable backup of a fusion drive any different than a non-fusion drive, Stephen? So... Mac OS is really smart about this, and if you use something like Carbon Copy Cloner or SuperDuper, as we spoke about a couple of weeks ago, you don't have to worry about this. They basically transfer the volume on the whole into the file system. It doesn't see, well, this is an SSD and this is a hard drive. It just sees it as one volume. So no worries at all. Uh, just go crazy with your bootable backups. It's a real fun way to spend a weekend. I didn't know that. Yeah, it's very smart. Crucial TK on Twitter asks... Uh, I recovered my MacBook from a time capsule backups using Time Machine, and it did not recover the photos database. Is there any way to restore it with original files? Great question, Crucial, Crucial TK, uh, crew. <laughs> uh, so if your time capsule backup did restore your, or rather did backup your photo base, um, it's pretty easy to crack open those past backups. We actually have a how-to on iMore, which we'll link on the show notes. Um, so you can poke into those backups and basically pull just the photo database out of that backup and restore it to your current Mac. Um, however, there is a chance that for whatever reason, your photo database didn't get backed up. There is a system in Time Machine that allows you to selectively exclude certain things. Um, so before you go cracking into backups, I might even just look at your time machine preferences and see if any files are excluded, because that might be what happened if uh, if your photo database didn't get restored, or it could have, honestly, it could have just been a blip with a time capsule restore. Um, if it is a blip, unfortunately, um, you can go into an older time capsule backup and see if that's still there, because of course it does... Uh, backup segmentally, so you might have your full photo base database in a in a f 
older, older backup. So I would definitely recommend looking through them and seeing if the photos database is lurking there. Um, if you're completely out of luck, I'm really hoping that you backed up your photos in another place, uh, like Dropbox or CrashPlan um, or Google Photos or iCloud Photo Library. Um, I think Stephen and I have talked about this on past podcasts, but it's really important that you back up your photos in multiple places because they are pre- precious, cherished memories and you don't want to lose them. That's true. So uh, best of luck. Okay, last question of the speed run. Stephen, Jim asks, should I reformat my external drive I use for Time Machine backups to the new APFS? And will Time Machine backups run faster to close our uh, backup-related speed run here? Yeah, it's been very backup-focused. Uh, the short answer is no. So with Mac OS High Sierra, Time Machine is staying more or less the same. The only big difference is if you're a, a notebook user, the mobile backups will be much faster, which should yield a little bit better battery life and less disk access. But backing up to an APFS volume is actually not supported in High Sierra. So if you do it manually, Time Machine's not going to work anymore. Mm. Uh, I think at some point when they change this, Apple will just have a little dialogue of, hey, convert your Time Machine drive and you'll get goodies. Uh, but that's not this year. So... Uh, you need to leave that alone. You can back up an APFS, APFS volume. So when you update to High Sierra and the, the installer asks, hey, do you want to convert to the new file system? You can click yes. Time Machine will continue to work. But that Time Machine drive, so that USB drive you have on your desk or your time capsule, just leave it alone. And I think Apple will get around to that hopefully in the next couple of years. So just so I'm clear, Stephen, um, if I have an external USB drive, I want to keep that as the old file system, um, what is it, H- HFS Plus? Yes. Um, I want to leave that alone. And when I run Time Machine backups from High Sierra, it will do whatever it needs to to back up that information. I do not need to convert my external drive to APFS. And eventually, Apple will put out stuff so that I can convert my drive to APFS and back it up with Time Machine. But for now, just leave everything alone. That, that sounds good to me. Cool. All right. That brings us to the end of this episode of Query. Thank you so much for listening. You can find links to all the stuff we talked about on the website, relay.fm slash query slash four. I want to mention real quick that August is birthday month at Relay. And as part of birthday month, uh, shows put out extra episodes. So if you are a member of Relay FM, so if you support this show or another show you love directly, you will have access to all of that. Uh, so we're going to be working on an idea for that for Query, uh, but all the other shows you love on Relay will have bonus episodes. So if you're not a member uh, and you want to support this show, you can do it on, on our webpage, relay.fm slash query or any other show, uh, and you get you get all the goodies no matter what show you support. But we would love your support for Query and all the great shows. Like I said, to submit questions, please tweet with the hashtag AskQuery and we will see it. In the meantime, you can find Serenity's writing at imore.com and she's on Twitter at Saturn, S-E-T-T-E-R-N. You can find my writing at 512pixels.net and I am ISMH on Twitter. Until our next round of questions, Serenity, say goodbye. Goodbye. Adios.